Chapter 2 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There can be no doubt that from his mother, for whom he felt so great a love and so deep a reverence, Oscar Wilde inherited many of those admirable gifts and graces which so distinguished him amongst his contemporaries. Even as Lady Wilde, Oscar had an astonishing facility for learning languages. My favourite study, she once related, was languages. I succeeded in mastering two European languages before my 18th year. It is on record that Oscar Wilde was able to learn the difficult German language in an incredibly short time. We are informed in The Story of the Unhappy Friendship that during the railway journeys which he took in England in connection with his lecturing tour in the winter of 1883-1884, carrying a small pocket dictionary and a volume of Heine with him, one book in each pocket of his fur-lined overcoat, he taught himself German so thoroughly that afterwards the whole of German literature was open to him. Lady Wilde was a wonderful classical scholar. She had the sheer delight in Latin and Greek literature that true scholars manifest, and made of the Roman orators or the Greek tragedians her favourite reading. A lady once called at number one Merrion Square, and found Sir William's house in the possession of the bailiffs. There were two strange men, this lady relates, sitting in the hall, and I heard from the weeping servant that they were men in possession. I felt so sorry for poor Lady Wilde and hurried upstairs to the drawing-room, where I knew I should find her. Speranza was there indeed, but seemed not in the least troubled by the state of affairs in the house. I found her lying on the sofa, reading that Prometheus Winctus of Aeschylus, from which she began to declaim passages to me, with exalted enthusiasm. She would not let me slip in a word of condolence, but seemed very anxious that I should share her entire admiration for the beauties of the Greek tragedian which she was reciting. Of Oscar Wilde's scholarship, nothing need be said here. His reputation in that respect is well established. On what this reputation was based will appear hereafter. Lady Wilde was a brilliant talker. Was there ever in the world a more brilliant conversationalist than Oscar Wilde? Lady Wilde's serenity and tolerance reached a level to which none but the great philosophers have attained. This tolerance and resignation she taught to her son, as some mothers teach their sons those imbecilities which in the aggregate are known as worldly wisdom. My mother, writes Oscar Wilde, who knew life as a whole, used often to quote to me Goethe's lines, written by Carlyle in a book he had given her years ago, and translated by him, I fancy, also. Who never ate his bread in sorrow, who never spent the midnight hours, weeping and waiting for the morrow, he knows you not, ye heavenly powers. They were the lines which that noble queen of Prussia, whom Napoleon treated with such coarse brutality, used to quote in her humiliation and exile. They were the lines my mother often quoted in the troubles of her later life. I absolutely declined to accept or admit the enormous truth hidden in them. I could not understand it. 
I remember quite well how I used to tell her that I did not want to eat my bread in sorrow, or to pass any night weeping and watching for the dawn. Yet the second verse, which seems to have been overlooked by Lady Wilde as well as by Queen Louisa, was one from which, had it been taught him also, the prisoner might have derived consolation. Goethe here formulates the law of predestination with the implacability of a Calvin or a Mohammed. Ihr führt ins Leben in hinein und lässt den Armen schuldig werden. Dann übergießt er in dem Pein, denn jeder Schuld reicht sich auf Erden. It is always a dangerous thing to mutilate a thought. A German word which well describes one trait of Speranza's character, and which is not easily translated into English, is Schweimerisch. This adjective describes a state of gushing exaltation, a somewhat too ready enthusiasm, a capacity for discovering romance in what is trite and commonplace. The word conveys mild and tolerant censure, and generally suggests that the person to whom it is applied is too much taken up in daydreams to give much attention to orderliness and the other domestic virtues. One feels that but for Speranza's schwärmerei, there would have been no bailiffs ever to be found in the hall of that fine house in Merrion Square, and that the surgeon oculist in ordinary would not have been allowed to go out into the streets of Dublin in the neglected condition which inspired Father Healy's mordant jibe. There was nothing of the Schweimer in Oscar Wilde's composition. He had no penchant for enthusiasm, exaltation he never displayed, and though as a writer he enrolled himself under that drapeau romantique de Jeune Gruyère of which Théophile Gautier speaks, as a man of the world he avoided romance. He was, for precision, for the absolute, for rule and proof. He was at one and the same a perfect grammarian and an excellent logician. And that, in spite of the restraint of his reason, he gave way to promptings so illogical as those that led to his catastrophe, shows that at times, and under certain conditions, his reason failed him. While he inherited from his mother many distinguished qualities, it may be deduced from his life that the preponderating maternal influence in his composition was responsible also for that abnormality of conduct which was the direct cause of his downfall. It is a matter of common observation among physiologists that where a child is born to a couple in which the woman has the much stronger nature and a great mental superiority over the father, the chances are that the child will develop at certain critical periods in his career an extraordinary attraction towards persons of its own sex. This fact is one of nature's mysteries. Those who believe in a divine creation of the world should reverently bow their heads before what they cannot understand and ought to take to be a divine dispensation. At any rate, the wisdom of nature may be presumed greater than that of the ecclesiastical courts. It is held in Ireland amongst people who knew the L.G. family that Lady Wilde's assertion that her ancestors were of Italian origin 
that the name Elgi is a corruption of the patronymic Alighieri, which would have implied a descent from, or at least a kinship to, the immortal Dante, was but the outcome of a vivid and self-deceiving imagination. Her conversation afforded many instances of this habit of self-delusion. Things that she wished to be facts soon became invested in her mind with the solidity of such. Her daydreams embodied themselves. For this her characteristic of Schwärmerei accounts also. Her sons never repeated the legend of any Florentine descent, though Willie at least was not averse to boast of his relationships. Oscar, on the other hand, apart from his occasional references to the cousin who had so sonorous a name, Gideon Oosley, and to that other cousin, Wills, who combined with dramatic genius a mass of genial eccentricity, never spoke of his relations. He had an instinctive horror of anything approaching to self-aggrandizement, which he described as the worst form of vulgarity. According to Lady Wilde, the Alighieri who first settled in Ireland, and whose name was corrupted into Elgi, was her great-grandfather. This man's son was the famous Archdeacon Elgi of Wexford. Here another negation is necessary. Lady Wilde was not the daughter of an Episcopalian clergyman. She was not the daughter of Archdeacon Elgi. Yet these misstatements are reproduced in the authoritative biographical notices which have been published about her. In a letter which she wrote on 10th August 1893 to Mr. D.J. O'Donoghue of Dublin, the author of an admirable Life of Mangan, she writes, referring to one of these biographical errors, In the sketch given of myself, I regret that I was not named as granddaughter of Archdeacon Elgy of Wexford, the Archdeacon is one of the saints of the Wexford calendar, and the people are always pleased to connect me with him. My father was eldest son of Archdeacon Elgy, and he was not a clergyman. Jane Francesca Elgy was born in Wexford in 1826 of a Protestant and conservative family. Her paternal grandfather, the Archdeacon referred to above, was a most distinguished man, he was a rector of Wexford, and Lady Wilde used to tell an anecdote about him to illustrate his kindly character and the impulsive feelings of the Irish people. During the revolution of 1798, a band of rebels had entered Wexford Church, where the archdeacon was celebrating the sacrament with a number of his parishioners. The clergyman was dragged from the altar, and was about to be put to death by the pikes of the infuriated Irish, when one of them, striking up the weapons which had already been turned upon his devoted breast, implored his comrades to spare a man who once had done an act of great kindness to his family. He related this act of charity, one of hundreds for which the rector was famous, and spoke with such eloquence that not only did the rebels, who had been committing many acts of great cruelty in the district, spare his life, but they also resolved that none of his belongings should be touched, and a guard was placed at the rectory to protect the lives and the property of all its dwellers. Her mother was a Miss Kingsbury, who was the granddaughter of Dr Kingsbury, who in his day was president of the Irish College of Physicians, and the intimate friend of Dean Swift. His son, Dr Thomas Kingsbury, 
the father of Sarah Kingsbury, who was Lady Wilde's mother, was a commissioner in bankruptcy and the owner of the well-known mansion Leale House in Dublin. Lady Wilde had many distinguished relations. One of her uncles was Sir Charles Ormsby, Bart, who was a member of the last Irish Parliament. She was first cousin to the Sir Robert McClure, who was famous as an explorer, and who is best known as the seeker of the North West Passage. Her only brother, Judge Elgie, was a distinguished member of the American Bar. She was also a grandniece of the famous writer, the Reverend Charles Maturin. Of this kinship, Oscar Wilde was in his heart very proud. When he left prison, it was from the hero of this Charles Maturin's most famous novel, Melmoth the Wanderer, that he borrowed the name under which he was to drag out the remaining agony of his years. Possibly what most endeared to him the memory of this great-granduncle was that the mighty Balzac, for whom his admiration was unlimited, had expressed his high approval of the famous novel. In his Le Elixir de Longue Vie, Balzac gazettes Oscar Wilde's great-uncle with Molière, with Goethe and with Byron, as one of the greatest geniuses of Europe. He refers as follows to Melmoth and to its author, Maturin. Il fut en effet le type de Don Juan de Molière, du Faust de Goethe, du Manfred de Byron et du Melmoth de Maturin, grande image tracée par les plus grandes jeunes de l'Europe. One needs to know the estimation which Oscar Wilde held of Balzac as an artist and a thinker to understand with what gratification these lines of highest tribute to his kinsman must have filled him. But besides Balzac, there was another great intellect which had confessed to the power which Maturin and his hero had exercised over him. In W. M. Thackeray's Goethe in his old age, we find the following reference to them. Quote, I felt quite afraid before them, and recollect comparing them to the eyes of the hero of a certain romance called Melmoth the Wanderer, which used to alarm us boys thirty years ago. Eyes of an individual who had made a bargain with a certain person, and at an extreme old age, retained those eyes in all their awful splendour. Unquote. Charles Baudelaire, the poet for whom Oscar Wilde's admiration was so intense, wrote thus of Melmoth. Quote, Célèbre voyageur Melmoth, la grande création satanique du révérend Maturin, quoi de plus puissant relativement à la pauvre humanité que ce pâle et ennuyé Melmoth. In the house in Merrion Square was a fine bust of Charles Maturin. It is either a cast of one executed at the request of Sir Walter Scott and formerly preserved at Abbotsford, or from a mask impression taken after his death. Though, of course, the portrait of an older man, than when Melmoth was written, years seem to have told very little on his face if we compare it with the strikingly youthful countenance that appears in the new monthly magazine. In this Charles Maturin, we find that mixture of genius and insanity which manifested it also in the lad who was brought up in reverent contemplation of his bust, and in whole-hearted admiration of his life and work. Kinsman by affinity no less than kinsman by consanguinuity can transmit their qualities and defects to their posterity. 
and there can be no doubt whatever that Oscar Wilde's nature was greatly moulded by the strong influence that Maturin exercised over his mother. This being an indisputable fact, it becomes necessary to seek some further information on the subject of this strange and brilliant man, who so many years after his death was to stand sponsor to the most unhappy of his kinsmen. The best account of Charles Maturin as a man is to be found in the pages of that excellent biography of Clarence Mangan, the Irish poet, by R.J. O'Donoghue, to which reference has been made above. Mr. O'Donoghue prefaces Mangan's description of Maturin with some comments of his own, and the whole passage may be quoted here. Particular attention may be requested to the account of Maturin's eccentricities of dress. They may explain much in Oscar's peculiarities in the same respect. Oscar Wilde was accused, because of them, of a vulgar desire for réclame, for self-advertisement. To Charles Maturin, a more lenient age accorded his foibles, just as to Balzac was granted his monkish cowl, to Van Dyck his court array, and to Barbet de Oraville his cloak of red samite. The following is Mangan's description with O'Donoghue's prefatory remarks. Quote, Towards the close of his life, Mangan put on record his impressions of this remarkable writer, Maturin, in whom Scott and Byron so thoroughly believed that the first offered to edit his works after his death, and the latter used all his influence successfully to get a hearing for his plays. Numerous stories are related of him. His genius was of the untamed, uncultivated kind. His works are those of a madman, glowing with burning eloquence and deep feeling, but full of absurdities and inconsistencies. His Irish tales, such as The Wild Irish Boys and, and The Milesian Chief, are made almost unreadable by a vicious and ranting style. Whenever Maturin was engaged in literary work, he used to place a wafer on his forehead to let those who entered his study know that he was not to be disturbed. Mangan had more than the prevailing admiration for the grotesqueness of Maturin's romances. Their terrible and awe-inspiring nature impressed him profoundly. He felt a great fascination for this lonely man of genius, who at one period he might have called in his own words, the only, the lonely, the earth's companionless one. He opens his sketch, which is very characteristic of his style, with a humorous rhyme. Maturin, Maturin, what a strange hat you're in. Quote, I saw Maturin but on three occasions, and on all these within two months of his death. I was then a mere boy, and when I assure the reader that I was strongly imbued with a belief in those doctrines of my church which seem, and only seem, to savour of what is theologically called exclusiveness, he will appreciate the force of the impulse which urged me one morning to follow the author of Melmoth into the porch of St. Peter's Church in Angers Street, and hear him read the burial service. Maturin, however, did not read, he simply repeated, but with a grandeur of emphasis and an impressive power of manner that chained me to the spot. His eyes, while he spoke, continually wandered from side to side, and at length rested on me, who reddened up to the roots of my hair at being even noticed by a man that ranked far higher in my estimation than Napoleon Bonaparte. I observed that, after having concluded the service, he whispered something to the clerk at his side, 
and then again looked steadfastly at me. If I had been the master of scepters, of worlds, I would have given them all that moment to have been put in possession of his remark. The second time I saw Maturin, he had been just officiating, as on the former occasion, at a funeral. He stalked along York Street with an abstracted, or rather distracted, air, the white scarf and hat-band which he had received remaining still wreathed round his beautifully shaped person, and exhibiting to the gaze of the amused and amazed pedestrians whom he almost literally encountered in his path, a boot upon one foot and a shoe on the other. His long, pale, melancholy, Don Quixote out-of-the-world face would have inclined you to believe that Dante, Bazaget, and the Cid had risen together from their sepulchres and clubbed their features for the production of an effect. But Maturin's mind was only fractionally portrayed, so to speak, in his countenance. The great Irishman, like Hamlet, had that within him which passed show and escaped far and away beyond the possibility of expression by the clay lineament. He bore the hunderscars about him, but they were graven, not on his brow, but on his heart. The third and last time that I beheld this marvellous man I remember well. It was some time before his death, on a balmy autumn evening in 1824. He slowly descended the steps of his own house, which, perhaps, some future transatlantic biographer may thank me for informing him, was at number 42 York Street. Footnote. 41 is generally given as the number. End footnote. And took his way in the direction of Whitefriar Street, into Castle Street, and past the Royal Exchange into Dame Street, every second person staring at him and the extraordinary double-belted and treble-caped rug of an old garment, neither coat nor cloak, which enveloped his person. But here it was that I, who had tracked the footsteps of the man as his shadow, discovered that the feeling to which some individuals, rather over-sharp and shrewd, had been pleased to ascribe this affectation of singularity, had no existence in Maturin. For instead of passing along Dame Street, where he would have been the observed of all observers, he wended his way along the dark and forlorn locality of Dame Lane, and, having reached the end of this not very classical thoroughfare, crossed over to Anglesey Street, where I lost sight of him. Perhaps he went into one of those bibliopolitan establishments wherewith that paternoster row of Dublin then abounded. I never saw him afterwards. An inhabitant of one of the stars dropped upon our planet could hardly feel more bewildered than Maturin habitually felt in his consociation with the beings around him. He had no friend, companion, brother. He and the lonely man of Shiraz might have shaken hands, and then parted. He, in his own dark way, understood many people, but nobody understood him in any way. Unquote, unquote. Till the age of 18, Francesca Elgi devoted herself entirely to study and reading. Till my 18th year, I never wrote anything, she relates. Then, one day, a volume of Ireland's Library, issued from the Nation office by Mr Duffy, happened to come my way. I read it eagerly, and my patriotism was kindled. 
This volume was Danton Williams' book, The Spirit of the Nation. Till then, says Lady Wilde, I was quite indifferent to the national movement, and if I thought about it at all, probably had a bad opinion of its leaders. For my family was Protestant and conservative, and there was no social intercourse between them and the Catholics and nationalists. But once I had caught the national spirit, and all the literature of Irish songs and sufferings had an enthralling interest for me, then it was that I discovered that I could write poetry. In sending my verses to the editor of The Nation, I dared not have my name published, so I signed them Speranza, and my letters John Fenshaw Ellis, instead of Jane Francesca Elgie. Lady Wilde did not commence contributing to The Nation in 1844, as her biographers state. Her first contributions appeared in that journal in 1847. She was at that time living with her parents at 34 Leeson Street, which is in a quarter which is the Bayswater of Dublin. Her most famous poem was entitled A Million a Decade. These contributions were for the most part published in a small type column which preceded the leading articles, and which appears to have been reserved for the efforts of amateur contributors, answers to correspondence, etc., Later on, however, that is to say in 1848, the honours of large type and prominent position were accorded to Speranza's poems and John Fenshaw Ellis's prose. The girl's poetry had no particular merit either of expression or of thought, and indeed, compared unfavourably with similar verse contributed by three other young women whose nationalism was of a more sincere type. These were known to the readers of the nation as Eva, Mary and Thomasine. In his book, My Life in Two Hemispheres, Sir Charles Gavin Duffy speaks of Speranza as the most gifted of the four, and indeed describes her as a woman of genius. At the time that the book was written, the former nationalist editor, the revolutionary of 1848, was living in opulence and luxury at the Villa Marguerite in Nice, decked with a British title and enriched with British gold. His sympathies would naturally tend rather to the one of the four women who, like himself, had abandoned the cause of nationalism as une erreur de jeunesse, when that cause had become a desperate one and a more profitable field for enthusiasm and activity offered itself. Among the martyrs of 1848, not among those who had the fortune to die then, but amongst the poor, broken old men who are dragging out penurious existences in Dublin at this very day, men who never abandoned the cause and who will die as ardent nationalists as they were when Duffy and Speranza fired them into acts which sent them into confinement in British jails, neither Speranza nor Duffy are remembered as nationalists with great esteem. The Fenian editor, O'Leary, states that Speranza was of the four poetesses on the nation, the one who was considered the least talented, that Eva was held to be the most sincere and the most gifted. Eva was Miss Eva Mary Kelly. Mary was Miss Ellen Downing. As to Thomasine, her anonymity has not been pierced. 
the great effect produced by Francesca Elgi, it is to be noted as characteristic that she objected to the beautiful but unromantic name of Jane and never used it, was when she denounced herself in open court as the authoress of the famous article Yacta Est Alia, for the publishing of which the future Sir Charles Duffy of the Villa Marguerite Nice was being prosecuted. This article appeared in number 304, printed 304, of The Nation, which was published in Dublin under date of Saturday 29th July 1848. The Nation, a weekly magazine journal of 16 pages, of the size of the Petit Journal, which was published at sixpence, was then in its sixth volume. On the number preserved in the National Library of Ireland in Dublin, there is written upon the front page in ink the following words. This is the suppressed number. I believe it is the only copy which escaped, and that was not seized and carried to the castle. This statement appears to be erroneous, for other copies are in existence, including one at the British Museum. Lady Wilde's article was the second leader on the editorial page. The leading article, presumably written by Sir Charles Gavin Duffy of the Villa Marguerite Nice, was entitled The Toxin of Ireland, and is of that kind of political inflammatory writing which, once one has read it, is immediately forgotten. On this article, Francesca Wilde's article follows. It is published anonymously and fills rather more than two columns of the paper. As it is a document of a central interest in the archives of the family of the man with whom this volume deals, it is reproduced in extenso in the following chapter, just as it was printed in The Nation, with the misprints italicised. The 304th number of the revolutionary paper, edited by the future Sir Charles Gavin Duffy of the Villa Marguerite Nice, contained much other matter which was calculated to incense the castle. Amongst the topical articles which were published, we find one on easy lessons in military matters, by a veteran, which deals with such subjects as organisation, arms. Elsewhere in this journal, the young nationalist, who has been inflamed by the editorials of Sir Charles Gavin Duffy, was instructed how to break down a bridge or blow one up, how to buy and try a rifle, and valuable topical information was also given on casting bullets. It may be added that Francesca Elgi had no dealings with the other people, apart from Duffy, who were active in agitation. In a letter to Mr O'Donoghue, dated 13th November 1888, she writes, I can give no information as to the workers of 48. Sir Charles Duffy would be the best authority. His address is the Villa Marguerite, Nice, France. End of chapter 2